Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back. Today we've got our man Richard Beck. He's a regular. You know him. He's always fun. Good conversation we got going on. Uh, let me remind you about the Mailbag Podcast. So I'm going to be posting this on the 20th, and I think you have until Wednesday, the whatever two days from now is third. Now, if you get to me by Thursday morning, that should work. So the 24th, um, we've got a lot of uh, good questions. We had some people send in some audio of questions, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun for the old uh, mailbag podcast. And so this is your last opportunity. If you want to ask a question about the podcast, uh, some of the questions have been about um, like practices that I've taken from certain guests, maybe some that stood out the most, those kind of things. Uh, you know, some Richard Rohr questions, of course, and uh, plenty other. So if you've got one, send it on in. Hit, hit us up on Facebook, Newsworthy with Norris, Nor. I can't even say my own last name, Newsworthy with Norsworthy on Facebook or email to me over at Luke at NorrisworthyCom. All right, that's it. Here we go. Richard Beck doing the thing. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we've got our man, Richard Beck, joining us from his home state, Pennsylvania. How are you, Richard? Yeah, it's good to be in Pennsylvania. We're, we're here with my family visiting uh, for, the, for the summer break. So you guys, good to see you. Wet, west side of Pennsylvania? P- P- yeah, Erie, PA, up yeah. on the lake. So yeah. we're, we're kind of the, we kind of orient with the Pittsburgh side of the state. Because mm. it was Philly on the one side. That's where yeah, I was you born. and I first met. Yeah, yeah. and uh but we're this is West Side, Pennsylvania. So Pittsburgh. We grew up rooting for the Steelers, right and on the Pirates. Yes, it's a blue collar city, just like you. You're a blue collar blogger. I don't That's know what that right. means. I don't know what that I'm means. St- I'm, that, that means I'm still on Blogspot. I'm the only blogger still on Blogspot. <laughs> you are and. <laughs> And your email is AOL, so that's also pretty cool. No, that's not true. I'm just kidding. Now, Jan is in the room, isn't she? Yes, Jan is can, here. Can uh, we get her to say hi? Yeah, say hi, Jana. Hi. She can't, she can't, you have she can't headphones hear us because we're on headphones, so she just uttered, just said hi into the, into we, the ether. So. We, we love Jana. Thank you for saying hi to us. As long as Luke's out there somewhere, I'm saying hi. Uh, I'm talking to her even though I know she's not listening, but hopefully she'll listen to the podcast and she'll hear me say, it's great to hear from you, Jana. Yeah, she's gonna she's gonna she's gonna make some tea here in a little bit because we've got back from a, a trip to England, and so yeah, that's her routine. Um, sh- how she shows up on the podcast by moving around in the background because she was in the background of the Rob oh, the Rob one, one. yeah, yeah, she was bringing us water and everything like that. So. Outstanding. Are you guys tea drinkers now that you've been in? We Europe? we are tea drinkers. We 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 had a lot of tea and clotted cream in the UK while we were over there. What's so. the other stuff? Clotted cream. It's it's like a it's a cream that's almost like the consistency of butter that they put on their scones, and mm-hmm. they you know you put strawberry jam on it. So it's kind of what you when they when you have a cream tea. When I went to England, I, a cream tea I thought was cream in the tea, but no, a cream tea is tea with scones, clotted cream, and strawberry jam on them. That sounds really good. It is really good, and we we. There were days we had like two cream teas in one afternoon, so we we put on some pounds over there. You know, it's what you got to do. When, <laughs> when, when in Rome, what? Where did the the trip to? Uh, I guess you were speaking all over. Where did that like trip come from? Was there one event that started it, or you guys just decided you want to head over there? Yeah, I got a, I got an invite from Hannah uh, Bywaters, who is a member at the City Gate Church in Brighton, 
and she wanted me to come over and speak and spend time with her church. And so she thought if I, between her contacts and I use my blog, we can maybe string together a few um, speaking engagements, uh, and those could all offset the cost of bringing Jan and I over. So that, that began over a year ago. And so um, I started off in Jersey, uh, which is an island off the Normandy coast, and gathered with the Business Connect group there, gathered with some um, scholars and entrepreneurs hmm. and academics to talk about intersections of business and Christianity. And I blogged about that uh, a couple weeks ago. And then we went to Brighton, spent uh, uh, time in Brighton preaching at uh, one church, but also with the City Gate Church at their retreat. And then was in London and St. Albans and spoke in churches there and then ended up in Aberdeen mm-hmm. by the end of the trip and uh, spoke at a different couple different churches up in Aberdeen. And so, and in between, Jan and I obviously kind of toured around. First time we'd ever been in the UK. Really? Mm-hmm. How yeah. long were you there? We were there a whole month. Wow. All of June. Yeah. That's a, that's a lot of UK right there. It what, is. What's, a, what's the one thing you guys did that you were like, this is what anyone who's visiting the UK has to do? The one thing? Yeah, like if, if, if I'm going over to the UK. That you have to do. We went to, you know, but Jan is a theater teacher. And mm-hmm. so I think our favorite thing that we did is uh, one afternoon in London, we went and saw um, As You Like It at the Globe Theater in London. And it's, it's, it's not – it's all close to the location of the original Globe, but they do shows there like they did in Shakespeare's. I mean the floor people are standing. Now we actually sat mm-hmm. and, and uh, paid a pound for a cushion, which was a, the best pound that we ever spent in the UK to sit on a cushion. <laughs> and, uh, but they don't have any lights. They don't have any project like microphones. I mean, it's like it's like they do Shakespeare as if it was done in Shakespeare's time. Really? And it was like the best theatrical performance we had ever seen. And so we just I think that was the high point for us is going to uh, go to the Globe. But but again, that's for theater people like Jan and I. Like we met. I don't know if, if people know this, but Jan and I uh, met auditioning for a play when we were in college. So we both have theater backgrounds. You guys. You have a theater record? I had no clue. You're, yeah, you're playing basketball and you're Bible majoring and you decide I'm going to do some theater. Well, as my basketball career was wrapping up, as, as I reached the limits of my physical capacities, um, I think that occurred to me one game when I was going back. I remember one game my freshman year, I was kind of going back on a fast break and a guy who was about like two inches shorter than me um, was, was going – going down. I was going to intercept him and he uh, took off about the foul line and then dunked over me. <laughs> and so I was pretty much posterized in that moment. And I think, ah, I think I've reached my limit here uh, as an athlete. And yeah, uh, when and so I, I think I dunked twice in my life during a practice. Really? Like that was the, that was like literally my pinnacle. I don't, and, uh, I, I was don't, mainly a shooter. I was mainly a, a shooter. shooter. Yeah. I don't think there's anything more revealing that you are truly a white person if you say what I'm about to say. But I think I dunked a tennis ball one time, and that's it. <laughs> Nothing says you're a white guy. Like, I dunked a tennis ball once. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I was – so I, I, I did a little track at ACU, and one day I'm in the, the weight room. I'm working out, doing bench press. And it's I have 225 on, which is a respectable weight to be doing your, your, your sets with, I feel like. And I look over to the left of me, and there's – a lady named Delarine, Dello, as some of her, our teammates called her, and she was benching 225 just like I was. And I'm like, 
Yeah. And this girl, she went to the Olympics, was in the finals for the, the high hurdles. And I was like, yeah, there's, there's a different breed of athlete in this room. And I am not that breed. So that's when I hung up the old pole vaulting spikes. Yeah. Yeah. After I got dunked on, I said, I need something else to do with my extracurricular time. I'll try out for a play. And so you went and- to the play. And so that's, yeah, I just did that to, to do something. And I did, that was at Northeastern. I was at Northeastern Christian. Mm-hmm. And so when I came to ACU, uh, I was transferring in, um, you know, as an upperclassman, needed, you know, needed to get find a friendship group. And uh, so I did it. So I, I showed up for an open audition for play in Jana, and I met in the lobby of the whole theater. And, um, and uh, we were both out there for auditions so we introduced ourselves so so and Jana again is a theater teacher and so theater is a huge part of our lives like I help her with her shows the theater season at Abilene Christian Schools where she teaches is kind of a big part of our, our family life yeah getting the shows up and running okay so you're in the UK you're seeing theater uh some a, th- a show with your theater loving wife and your theater loving self and uh along with your tour you're speaking all over the place and I don't know if you blogged while you were over there or when you got back, but you made a blog about the uh, like future of Christianity looking dark. Was that written while you were over there or when you got back? Yeah, no, it was written while I was there. Yeah. And, um, so okay. you, okay. So let me read this line. All right. Okay, this good. is complete Richard Beck right here. Religious affiliation is on the decline in America. They say the church is dying and I couldn't be more excited. Now that seems kind of ominous. Like, Hey, it's like um, it's like Game of Thrones. Winter is coming, and I love the cold. You know, it's just like very like a very ominous statement. Like church is coming to an end, but I love it. So I'm sure your avid listeners understand exactly what you're going for. But I'm sure if someone just read that for the first time, they would be kind of perplexed as to why a Christian would say the church is dying and you're excited. Well, that's good blogging right there. You know, be provocative. You know, <laughs> that's clickbait. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think. I, and, and so you have to read it closely to understand what I'm saying is that that a particular expression of the church, yeah. a particular moment in American Christianity is coming to an end. Um, and so we, so I probably put it should have put church in scare quotes. Um and so, so that, so yeah, if you read it closely, you know what I'm trying to say there is that a particular moment in American Christianity is coming to an end. Um, and as, as we've seen with all of this kind of outcry, because just soon after I wrote that, the, the Supreme Court uh, decision had come down about same sex marriage. And so you see this kind of huge outcry amongst kind of evangelical Christians about, you know, the, the trajectory of the culture. And so American Christians kind of feel, certain Christians feel that, you know, their, their ability to control the cultural discourse, their ability to kind of hold on to the levers of power um, is weakening. And, and we're entering fully into a post-Christian context. But for some of us, I think that is very welcome news, that I think Christianity is much better situated in a post-Christian context. Because I think it helps us dig into theological resources that I think are closer to the spirit of Jesus than what has captured the imagination, I think, particularly of evangelical Christians since the 80s with the rise of the kind of the moral majority and the religious right. Where the idea of the church was to control the levers of power and then coerce or force from the top down with with the power of the state 
which is backed up by the police and military force, you know, to impose our values on our culture, rather than investing in the church and um, uh, being a countercultural, loving witness to the world. Um, I, I just think Christianity is going to be much better situated. And I saw a vision of that in England. Mm-hmm. I might have over-romanticized my, my time in England because I think there are struggles over there mm-hmm. with smaller churches. And, 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 and you know small churches, can, can they have various struggles. People get burnt out because everybody has to do everything. And, and so um, there are struggles there. But there is a vibrancy that, but that when you go to, to UK in a post-Christian culture, that when people are showing up on a Sunday morning to worship, um, that you're dealing with a fairly committed, invested, passionate mm-hmm. follower of Jesus. Yeah. And there's just something concentrated about that experience over there that I found very refreshing. Yeah, so a lot of people say you can see where the future of American Christianity is going by looking at what Europe is doing right now. And you see like empty cathedrals that obviously were, were beautiful architecturally and they uh, had a great storied history of being significant, but now they're just people – uh, places people go for you know tourist stops, and so you you look at European Christianity and say this is eventually where American Christianity is going to be. So you go over there, you have this experience, and you say you're excited about it. And it, the weird thing to me is like you're part of a huge church, like the church you're a member of is two thousand plus members. However many uh, you know Stormin has run off in the last couple of weeks is is still up to be updated in that number, of course, but. Um, you're part of a big church, but you have like kind of like a small church mentality. I'm wondering like how you like bring those together because it's, you know, like at a 2,000 member church in a lot of ways, it's like this is like the old bastion of what, you know, American Christianity in some ways is losing, don't you think? The the large church? Yeah, like the, the yeah. mega, I, I think, honestly, I think in the future you're going to have small churches and mega churches and you're not going to have the in between. But that's my assumption. No, but, I, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's funny because when we, when we talked to um, our friends over there in the UK and, and they asked about the size of our church, we mentioned that it was 2,000. They were like, that's a mega church. And I go, actually, no. Uh, you know, that's, that's not a, a mega church. You know, that's just a <laughs> – That's just – Yeah, right. You know, but for them, 2,000 would be incredibly huge, you know. Um, uh, I don't know. I don't know. We have to figure out what's the metric for a mega church. I think once you have like a cafeteria and a bookstore. Yeah, bookstore. That's what it something, is. something, you know, at that level, when you start having those kinds of services, um, then – but yeah, no, I, I, I can see that. I, I do think at some point though there, there perhaps might need to be in the UK some consolidation because again – what you, what you have over there is you, you still have lots of denominational expressions in a given city, but they might number from 30 to 40, 50 people. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so, so I think if those denominations continue to stay separate, then, then yes, they're going to be maybe 40 people gathering in a old Anglican church. Mm-hmm. That's very beautiful and old. So, so so I do think a certain number could be achieved if if certain denomination – and I wonder if that's going to happen. I wonder if people would start banding together more cooperatively. Um, yeah, that might be definitely one of the benefits is to survive. People have to get over some of the uh, minor differences that, that keep them apart. That that definitely be one of the, the beautiful things that would come out of that. W- what else do you see as like the, the thing that you wanted to romanticize about – 
uh, Christianity in the UK that you see being a benefit to what American Christianity can or should be, or maybe will have to be in, in a few decades? Well, I, I definitely think, like I mentioned, numerically, there, there are advantages in the ability to um, uh, impact missionally in your, in your community, just with manpower and physical resources. Uh, there's, that, there's that capacity, right? Wait, you're talking about American Christian has the yeah, benefit? Yeah, Ameri- American Christian. So a church of 2,000 members can do a great, you know, we can do a lot of different kinds of things that, yeah. that a group of 30 people that are kind of just struggling to kind of get by um, might not be able to, to do as much. And so, uh, so, so that's what we're talking about the romanization. You know, there, there is something intimate that, that the small church kind of harkens back to the Christians in the catacombs on the margins of society, um, on the edges of empire. That's kind of a romantic kind of vision. But for those people that live and experience small churches, they know that that, that, that could be a very romantic view. But the day in, day out grind of getting together um, and feeling like you got to be there because if you don't show up, right? Uh, so yeah. I worry about burnout. Yeah, because on Thursday night at 8.15 when I'm up uh, loading up a church trailer that didn't get torn down on church uh, after church on Sunday morning, it's not that romantic when you have like mosquitoes biting you and it's still 90 degrees outside at 8.15. Uh, that's not as romantic, but there definitely is benefits of, of the small church. What do you – so you think that like the big church has the – obviously you have the capital to do some more missional things and some more uh, things that uh, – obviously you just don't have the resources doing a smaller thing. What do you think that uh, like European Christianity – is missing that American Christianity has to offer. Do you see like strengths of what we have that, you know, beyond just the resources? Um, the things that it did. Yeah. Like, uh, well, I, I can't really speak for European Christianity and I really can't speak, you know, I say you, UK, UK and Europe is the same thing. And <laughs> I think if you're there for four weeks, you're pretty much an expert on it. I don't I know. An, I'm an expert on that. Yeah. I don't have this hang up about having like a research degree or a PhD that makes me feel like I've got to be correct when I say things. <laughs> That's what, sorry, I just went on that I, rant. No, no. I think there are um, – I think one of the interesting things that, that struck me over there was um, – uh, yes, they have these big cathedrals and these churches, um, and people are talking about the um, – the empty, you know, the empty churches or cathedrals. But the interesting thing about a lot of those cathedrals and those churches are, uh, and I had a conversation with many people in the UK, so this isn't my impression, this is a conversation I had over there, is that many, for, very often those are still signs of Christendom, right? That's the Church of England. Uh, and it's, it's very much a political those churches kind of represent an era of a conflation of church and state that, um, that we don't have over here yeah. as much. Now, again, I think evangelical Christians have lost that imagination and have wanted to actually conflate church and state, which is why I think I wrote that post to kind of help us I think the post-Christian culture can help us recover a proper understanding of the relationship between the church and empire. Um, yeah. 
and, and so, but but one but one of the interesting things about England though is a lot of the churches I worship with uh, and in Scotland were independent churches, so churches that were stepping away from um, hmm. the Anglican Church because because of its conflation with the the state. Now, Episcopalianism here in the U.S. doesn't have that tight association with with the state, but there it does because you know it's Anglican, yeah, and it's very much the Church of England. Um, which would be very weird for Americans to hear the Church of America, um, right? So, so I do think there there um, are some. Uh, I do see think, think there are some things in America, at least in the independent churches, the, the Anabaptist movement, things like that. That I think the, the UK is kind of a lot of these independent churches are looking towards um, as they kind of imagine um, their their own post post Christian context. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I guess the, it, other, the other the other thing I would say too um, to, to kind of talk about the Church of Christ a little bit is more and more when I go around to these churches, and this is something we talked about Rob Bell with, is about the the the, the, the role of um, Eucharist and how um, that there seems to be a lot of energy and conversation about rethinking the church around the table, and um, and. That, that idea of gathering every week to break bread together mm-hmm. and also gathering around an open table um, that, I, that a lot of these independent churches that I was speaking with are really captivated by that idea. But I think that their imaginations have been so captured by kind of the Anglican or Roman Catholic, that, you know, not the Roman Catholic, but the Anglican vision of kind of like doing it quarterly or monthly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think there are, U.S. expressions of the table that I think, and the one I, obviously you and I are attracted to, the Church of Christ idea, that, that can be a resource, again, for, for the U.K. churches. Because every time I, I talked about that and said, hey, um, that's the reason why we gather in the churches of Christ, is to break bread around a table, um, I think there was a lot of resonance with that when really? I had that yeah, people saying, I think, I wish our church would do that. I think we should do that. Huh. And just because of their tradition, they're taking it a quarterly month, you know. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so they hear that and they go, oh, that's good. Huh. Well, and I think and I think that's one of the reasons why it evolved to not to be a regular practice. Because I, in, 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 you know, if you go back in the history of the church there, you know, access to communion was very much a civic thing, right? So the rector and the mayor and all of those people would kind of, you know, assess where you stood in relation to the society. And if you were kind of out of bounds, you would not be given access. And so communion became a way of civic control. Mm-hmm. Um, so the church was very much an apparatus of the state. And so that's why they're getting away from Oh, that makes perfect sense. I wonder if I could do that in my church, just not give community to the people I don't like. You, Hold on. So, they, so you needed time. So the reason why you would. Hey, you got to start that over. You're cutting out. Not community to people. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, well, I think that's, I think that's why they, they started doing it. Okay. Uh, Are you back? Yeah. Pick up with uh, back then it was uh, the mayors and quarterly. Uh, no, no. Uh, when you were in good standings, you would get it. Okay. Yeah. So, so one of the reasons why I think. They, they begin to take it more intermittently 
um, is because it, you needed time to kind of assess the standing of the people uh, who are going to give permission to take communion because the rector um, and the, the, the mayor, the civic authorities would work with the church to make sure you were a member in good standing in the community so that you'd be able to take communion. And so communion was being used as an apparatus of the state, as, as a form of social control. And so obviously you would need time in between various communion services to kind of, you know, assess the moral and the civic standing of a family or the family members so that they could be given access to communion. And so obviously you couldn't do that weekly, you know, the uh, kind of weekly observance of it just wouldn't give you time to, to assess. Who's in, um, who's out. Yeah, who's in and who's out. You just needed time to review everybody. You, so I think that's why the, pro, the I think that's why it got spaced out that way. Um, so it became a big event, you know, that was, it was that when communion was coming, everybody who would be able to go forward was, you say, here are the good citizens. I um, honestly, I would like to move communion to the end of service and say everyone who was on their phone for more than 30 seconds during the sermon doesn't get communion. Do you think yeah. I think that would be a great way to incorporate that today in America? I, yes, we should use communion as a club against anybody who falls asleep <laughs> in the sermon. Or <laughs> yeah, but the trouble is with that is that too many people got their Bibles on their phones now, so you don't ever know anymore. They're not looking at their Bible. There's 94 percent of those people are not. They're looking at Facebook or playing some bird game. Okay, you <laughs> you mentioned uh, uh, our friend Rob Bell, and if you guys weren't vacation up in Pennsylvania. You guys could have joined me and uh, gotten to hang out with Rob uh, just Saturday night. He was in Dallas. He was in Texas doing yeah, his on tour. On his uh, speaking tour. What is, that, what is that called? What's the name of that tour? Everything is Spiritual 2, Part 2. I don't know. what 2015. Because yeah. he had a, 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 a tour with the same name a few years back. And so he's just uh, the same name. But everything is spiritual. So he was in Dallas and uh, got to go down and hang out with him, listen to it. And it was... So good. Now, just the weird thing about someone getting on stage for an hour and 45 minutes or two hours and talking, no notes, no water, nothing, just him on the stage with the whiteboard. It's pretty impressive. He is got a phenomenal memory. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I heard him at Christianity 21 and we were talking beforehand. It sounded like an abstract of. You know, I remember only for 21 minutes, but it sounded like an abstract for the talk that you had heard. And I was just stunned by his um, command of facts and details. And rhetorically, it just he's, he's, he's a tour de force when you hear him when you hear him live. Yeah. Luckily, I didn't have to preach that next morning. Otherwise, I would have been like, man, I'm terrible compared to him because it's just unbelievable. Now, I, his storytelling, his theology, like I get that, but his first – 20, 25 minutes, he's discussing like the, the creation of like humanity starts with atoms and particles and the big bang and all that stuff. And he just has this encyclopedic knowledge of all of that. And it's, that's very impressive because it's outside his normal body of knowledge, which he shouldn't have that stuff that accessible, but he's, he's learned it. And so, okay. So he's talking and I found it interesting because he talks about some of the same things that, like, he talked about it. Uh, what is Tony Jones' conference called again? 21? Christianity 21? Christianity 21. Yeah, so I guess some of the stuff he talked there, and then some of the stories that he tells when we did uh, that interview with him back in, uh, in May. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that he's. I, I got to talk to him afterwards as well. 
And so I'm asking, like, well, what kind of notes do you have? Like, I'm wondering, like, if you talk for an hour and 45, how many pages of notes would you have? Like, Richard, if, if I was doing that, it would be probably 18 to 20 pages of notes. I don't know about you, but it would be a lot. And he says, well, what about you? How long would that be notes-wise? Oh, my goodness. I don't really know. I don't really talk a lot with notes. But you like, do you write your ideas down? Yeah, I jot down the moves I'm going to make, but I don't usually. But the, the the thing is with him though is that he's he's not just making broad points. He's he's referencing like yeah. very specific facts about atoms and all. You mean particles like, like it's, and it's, yeah. yeah, exactly right. right, right. I would so, have to write yeah, all be, that out, and I don't talk yeah. with notes either. But I would write it all out, and there would be something. And so I'm like, well, where is this doc? Because there has to be some document. And he goes, no, no. no really, what happened is he started with one story and then the idea, and the story was. Which I think you told me that he told us at, at the Christianity 21 conference, the story about driving off from the gas station, and uh, he, he still had the, the, the nozzle still in his car, and it popped off or whatever. And he said, I'm, I'm completely like gone right now because he's so overwhelmed, which is weird to me because there's part of me that felt like he just didn't care about all the negativity he got in the press. Yeah, we need to give some background to that. So, so for, for listeners, so he's telling – and I don't want to tell Rob's story. This might be in a book of his or something like that, but it's, it was in the middle well, not in the middle or at the pinnacle of kind of all the love wins controversy yeah. and all the, all the massive blowback. And yeah. And I think in his own mind, he felt like he was dealing with those stresses fairly well, but he was at a gas station, filling up his car, thinking about all that stuff. And he drove off with the nozzle still in his tank. And somehow that little thing, that lack of attention was symptomatic in his mind of how much he had gotten overwhelmed and distracted by. So it becomes this, seems like a little thing, right? A little act of forgetfulness. But for him, it seemed like it was finally the culmination that a lot of that stuff had kind of finally cracked him. Yeah. Um, and, 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 he, and he was, and he finally kind of admitted to himself the degree to which he had let a lot of that blowback get to him. And I guess like my reaction was the same as your reaction. That's, it, it seemed like in all of that, a real, vulnerable moment in him telling that story because it, it represented kind of a moment of weakness in his mind that became, I think, a, then a lever or a turning point in his own, a real important point in his own Yeah. So I had talked with uh, Richard uh, Rohr a while back and we were talking about the Enneagram and we, which by the way, have you done any work on the Enneagram? Do you know your number? Have you looked into that at all, Richard? No, I have not. You know, what's interesting about the Enneagram is that psychologists, uh, I think, are kind of behind the eight ball, like haven't really gotten involved a lot with that. So, I mean, obviously, I know a lot about personality assessment, but I have not gotten into the Enneagram a lot yet. So I don't, I don't know what my number is. You can tell me what my number is. No, I don't think I know it well enough to, nor do I. No, I'm not smart enough to do that. But is there, is there like, the, is there like the best Enneagram, like the one that, you know, you should, I should covet? Obviously, mine is the best. Okay, um, right. Uh, but my dad said the same thing. Like he hadn't done a whole lot of work on that, but he had done obviously the, uh, the MMPI two and the PX P 90 X 16 or whatever it's called. I don't know. Uh, but the Enneagram was, wasn't his thing anyway. So Roar says that the same number that, that Rob has that I have, which is a personality type that typically does not want to deal with pain. Like it's, it, it's always running away from that and wants to always be happy. And so as I've been processing that, and we're recording the day that I'm about to post a, 
the uh, the last podcast, which my listeners are going, oh yeah, I heard that. The one uh, which I talked to one of Roar's students, a lady named Suzanne Stabile, and we talked about the Enneagram. And so I just talked to Suzanne a couple of days before, and so I'm thinking about the Enneagram again. I'm thinking about my personality, like it doesn't want to like deal with pain. And I know that's what what Roar said. Rob is, and Rob told me afterwards that's what he is too. And the whole thing that, of his talk is, I think it's it's centralized on the idea of learning to to live in that, like lear, learning to live in that dark matter which we don't want to deal with. And it's almost like he's his his good news that he has is he learns to deal with that, like the worst possible scenario for him and that i in that moment was everyone not liking him anymore people rejecting his work people saying all these terrible things about him but that's like the turning point that he said it's okay i've been through this and he can survive instead of doing the natural thing which someone with my personality type and my number would want to do is to run from the pain is to stay in it and i found that really compelling yeah and i I think that came out in our podcast with him in may when he talked about i don't believe in failure Remember that? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's what he was talking about, because I think, I think at, at that prior to that event, that story he told at the gas station, he was processing all of that as as failing. Right? People have turned against me. People are upset with me. You know, there are a variety of consequences about speaking and all those kinds of things that probably could have happened, like invitations being pulled. Right? So all of that could be interpreted very much as a as a failure. Um, and the symptom of the failure would be pain, right? When, when things are painful, we take that as feedback that, you know, things are failing. Yeah. Um, things are going wrong. Um, and, uh, but it, but I, that's why I think that when he looked back at that, he doesn't see it as a failure anymore. He see, he saw that as kind of some, I guess what you call creative, uh, kind of a creative destruction, you know, yeah. certain, certain, certain. He had kind of reached a certain trajectory in his own kind of spiritual evolution, and and some things died in that. So maybe the pain was symptomatic of some things being kind of killed off that he think needed to be killed off. And I think he was kind of death and resurrection kind of thing. Felt himself uh, more liberated, opened up because he let some of those things go, yeah. and that kind of began a new tra- new trajectory of creativity yeah. for him that we see him currently doing now. And he and he talks about now is that he's in some way starting over, which. He's obviously not starting from scratch, but he's having to to start over what he's been building in this, uh, you know, the tribe of people who who love and appreciate his work. He's had to like restart that since you know love wins, and I, it sounds like he's excited about that, and he's he's passionate about it. And he's loving the tour, and so that's you know that's really cool to see. And and okay, I want to circle back though to the. Um, Chardin stuff, which I think we talked about in our podcast with him back in May. And it was, he, he referenced Chardin, in, Teilhard de Chardin in the talk and his idea of like, you know, we're progressing, we're moving forward. I think uh, Chardin's line is uh, the omega point. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Let, let, you're talking about the omega point is a, is a great way to pull in listeners to a podcast. I'm <laughs> sure people are really excited about the next five minutes here. <laughs> but okay. But it's a general idea that humanity is getting better, that we're evolving into something. Be- is that a fair, fair way to? Yeah. I, I think there are um, a variety of theological impulses. Um, process theology is perhaps one. Um, you know, the omega point. Rob is interested in something called spiral dynamics. I think there are a variety of different views out there that broadly could suggest that 
the universe or at least consciousness is, is, has trajectory, mm -hmm. a positive trajectory. So I think that's the simplest way to frame that people that, that, that we're heading somewhere. We're all, we're not just kind of moving around laterally, mm -hmm. you know, backing up, but that, that, that certain kinds of, um, advances are being made and we're moving forward. And, th and that, that macro level universe wide kind of movement is also mirrored in our own life stories as we, as we, as you know, my particular experience of consciousness is, is moving forward. So, so I don't want to use the word evolutionary, you know, but, but there is a sense of like directionality to mm. it. Um, and so God, we're moving towards, if you're a religious person, right, we're being drawn to or moving towards God. Now, whether or not we're being pulled toward that trajectory or we're evolving toward that trajectory, um, that, that, you know, that's, that's, that's a fascinating area of debate. But, yeah, definitely that idea that the Omega Point is a, is a location where we're converging upon God. And I think you see that in a variety of different Christian eschatological visions, right? You know, yeah. God being but God being all in all, we're all being moved and drawn toward God. God's spirit is pulling creation towards God's self. Yeah. And obviously he's, you know, Rob's stuff is, you know, this is God's work in all of existence is like God is doing all this and God's involved and God's here with us. And I like the idea that God is with us. I like the, the idea that God is involved. I just struggle with the idea that we're actually getting better. I feel like we're just reinventing the same problems in a different circumstance. And maybe I'm more pessimistic, but you know, you look at the examples of obviously we're not sacrificing children anymore and we don't have, you know, slaves in America anymore. So that we're, we're obviously better in that area, but, but are we really better overall? Like is, is thing, are, are things today that much better? I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm off on this, but would you say, you know, we're better now than we were a hundred years ago? You know, I've had this debate a lot with with uh, some friends of mine. Um, I, you know, I go back and forth on, on this. The, the the book for people to read. There are two books that people sh should read if they want to kind of get a take on this. Uh, one is Non Zero um, by I think it's Robert Wright, um, who kind of just argues it's a that that uh, um, at, at the heart of the evolutionary process isn't competition. But cooperation. Okay. That they're like 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 things get better, we evolve more quickly when we find the the non non zero sum, the cooperative win win outcome mm -hmm. than the win you know, than the winner winner loser outcome. And so that's his argument that 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 cooperativeness is at the heart of the evolutionary process. So so if even at the cellular level, right, that 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 the, the cell itself some people have argued that the, the mitochondria has its own DNA inside the larger cell that has a DNA and that, and that cellular evolution was driven by these two different cells finding a win-win solution, working together, you know, and, and, and that human societies, when we work together and we find the win-win, we thrive, you know. Um, and the other one, so, so you might say, okay, so that's a good, interesting theoretical idea, but the other book to read is The Better Angels of Our, Nat Better Angels of Our Nature by Steven Pinker, who makes this kind of argument that uh, think, mentioned things that you talked about that that uh, uh, as as violence and slavery these things have become increasingly uh, removed from society. Now, when you say that, you dance on scary scary things because 
there's still sex trafficking, there's still slavery in the world, it's still a problem. Yeah. So to sit, sit there and say slavery is not a problem anymore is going to sound, you know, but, but Pinker's point is that for most of the westernized world, we recognize that as a problem, where just a couple hundred years ago... It wasn't a problem. Yeah, it, it, yeah I mean, it was actually enshrined in our constitution. I mean, that is a huge moral um, evolution, um, the way we globally think about slavery. That's not to say that slavery, so that goes, so I think that's, that's evidence for both, both and for, right. So slavery is still a problem. Human, human nature is still corrupt in various ways. So this is where the original sin argument might come, right? There's still kind of a, kind of a, a, a depravity about us. But that increasingly there is an awareness, at least at a civilized society, that, that those things are, are bad and that should be should yeah. be outlawed. So it takes place. It's taking place still, but it's taking place in the margins of society. Instead of the centers of it. Right, right. I mean, this is funny because in, in England, here's, a, here's an example, right? So we were at the Tower of London, right? And so we're getting this beef eater tour. And he's talking about how like up on the hill, um, they wouldn't do the public executions and people would flock to the executions for entertainment. Oh my goodness! They just lost, you know. I mean, that's that's you know that was great fun, you know, for the family and the kids to go down and watch people get their heads cut off. What? And, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what? uh, hey, hey, what are you guys doing? Say, oh yeah, we're gonna be at the execution. Yeah, I got good yeah, seats. Yeah, 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 I'll see you there. Hey, uh, you want to bring the cooler? Yeah, I got my okay. That, and that the, 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 the executioner would grab the head and lift it up, and the blood would be flowing out of the thing and down his arm, and people were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and so. So, you know, those kinds of things would just be completely unimaginable. I feel so much better about watching mixed martial arts in the UFC after hearing that story. That's so much worse. You know, and uh, the way they would treat animals, you know, and, and, uh, you know, with bear baiting and all that kind of stuff. I mean, so uh, all that to say is. I, so I go. I, so those are two interesting books that kind of do make this kind of very counterintuitive argument that humans are, are, are advancing, you know, morally. But but then again, there's so much injustice and depravity in the world mm-hmm. around things like slavery, and the treatment of women, you know, on and on it goes. Um, that to even make such a claim seems to diminish the evils that we are currently facing. And I, I think that's the the trick. It's hard to have a conversation about this. Because for every time you cite a positive data point, somebody's going to point out to a particular location of darkness and wickedness and war in the world. And so it just seems like a very politically incorrect thing to say that we're getting better given the the things we're facing. Yeah. But people have made the argument, though. So if you want to see the argument, I think Pinker's book, The Better Angel of Our Nature, is a good place to make the argument. Yeah. I mean, I I get it, though. I mean, the story about. Charleston, w- terrible story, but that wouldn't have been as much of a story decades ago. That would have been, oh, you know, that's unfortunate that happened. But it was a terrible, terrible act of, you know, terrible thing. In our culture, we'd say that's just abominable. But years before, eh, it's just part of it. And and so that's, I guess maybe that's a sign that it is progress that that we are aware that it is a problem. But I. I just have a, a great deal of difficulty getting around to saying, yes, we're better than we were 50 years ago or 100 years ago because it seems like we're just reinventing the problems in different ways. And I don't – I don't know. Anyway, whatever. Hey, you um, – speaking of Charleston, you wrote a blog about that. Oh, you also went to Selma too, which we got to talk about that as well. Um, okay. But yeah. uh, 
Okay, I want to talk about your. Let's do Selma first, and we'll get to Charleston. Right. So you went to uh, the fiftieth. Yeah, and so President Obama was giving the speech. Yeah, we were there the day we we got there the day after. He he was there the day before. the The normal bridge crossing is on Sunday, even because uh, even though if it's not on the exact date, does that make sense? They always yeah. because it was Bloody Sunday. They they try to do the the bridge the traditional bridge crossing on a Sunday closest to you know the anniversary. And I think. Oh, I think the actual 50th was the, the day before on a Saturday. Okay. And so, so President Obama was there on a Saturday, the actual day of Bloody Sunday. Um, and I believe walked across uh, with uh, uh, John Lewis, who, was, who led the march mm-hmm. uh, over the Edmund Pettus Bridge 50 years ago and was beaten along with many other people. Um, they walked over on Saturday. And I think that was a very select group. The, mm-hmm. the, not everybody could do that. Um, and so we showed up Sunday, Saturday night, missed that, but we were there for the Sunday of the actual, you know, normal gotcha. bridge walking where, you know, thousands and thousands of people crossed the bridge on that Sunday. So what made you guys make the trip out there? What was the draw? Well, regular readers will know that I've just been, um, a huge fan and kind of history buff of the American civil rights movement. I just, I find that part of American history um, just just really inspirational. So a lot of the heroes of my faith journey come out of that movement, and we could talk about why that is. But but uh, so I've always been a fan of the movement. And a couple of years ago, we took a group of ACU students on a freedom ride through the South. We got on a bus and we drove through historic civil rights movement sites, um, and j- just just because I think a lot of our ACU students are, are just unaware. They're just mm-hmm. unaware. We had African-American students on the trip who literally did not know many of the things they were looking at. Like, like, mm. like it was fascinating to see them being exposed to their own history, um, events, heroes, names um, that they had never experienced before. And so I just, I just feel passionate about the moral witness of that generation because I think we can take inspiration we're still fighting many, many battles, obviously. Obviously, the, the, the issues with Charleston, racism is still systemic throughout America. And so we're still fighting many of these battles. And I think some of our best resources, um, spiritually and politically, come will come from you know that, that generation. But we have to kind of keep going back to them to learn their lessons, uh, le- learn what motivated them, learn, learn um, what they did, the... the, the, the the techniques that they use and all of those kinds of things. And so I took my family through the South um, to, to scout out those sites before we took the ACU students. So we went to Selma, took my sons, Brendan and Aiden and my wife. We walked over the Edmund Pettus Bridge. and But they were too young hmm. to remember it. So when it was the 50th anniversary, and, and these 50th anniversaries are coming to an end now, right? And, and, and so uh, uh, like the Freedom Ride summer – you know, it was the 50th anniversary was the year before that. And, uh, because officially the American civil rights movement, the, the kind of classic era ended in 65 with the passing the voting, voting rights act, the 65 voting rights act. So 1955 was Rosa Parks, you know, not giving up her seat 
on the bus. And that began the Montgomery bus boycott, 55. And then mm-hmm. you go to 65, so 10 years. That was kind of like most of your yeah. most of the events that we think about. And so 65, you know, 50 years now, that's it. This is the last time we're going to celebrate a 50th anniversary. And I had missed some of the other commemorations. So, and my boys had not remembered it. So we, I decided that it was just going to be good for their moral development um, to, to take part in that experience, that bit of American history. So we loaded up the family car and headed out to Selma and joined in the crowd. And it was just packed. And it was... Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So so apparently the normal route is to start at Brown Chapel. So that chapel, which, again, is one of the reasons why I'm passionate about the American Civil Rights Movement, is how churches and preachers and, 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 and spiritual songs were at the heart of this movement. So churches were the base of operations. So they began in this church, and they would sing freedom songs. And then they, would, they left and walked over the bridge, and that's where uh, they were met by police and on horses and tear gas and everything. And so the, the typical march starts from the chapel, goes into the town, crosses the bridge. But because this was the 50th anniversary, um, two things happened. One, lots of people just started gathering at the base of the bridge. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people were at the base of the bridge. But then were also up where we were by the chapel, thousands and thousands of people were gathering up at the chapel. And then the chapel service went long because there were so many invited guest speakers. Like mm. Eric Holder was there, um, Al Sharpton was there, Jesse uh, uh, Martin Luther King, um, his son. Is he the third? I think but his son. I mean, just all these dignitaries spoke. So that service was like three to four hours. Oh wow! Yeah, we were out on the street watching it on a jumbotron, and um, and since it went late. Um, the people down at the foot of the bridge already crossed. They started going across. And then our group, thousands of people met. And so all these, these two groups met downtown and you, you couldn't move. It was just a traffic, it was a human traffic jam. It took us like an hour or two to just even get over the bridge. Oh my goodness. Because what happens is people cross the bridge, but there's nothing on the other side. So you then got to turn around and come back over. So you have thousands of people crossing and then thousands of people turning around and coming Crossing right back again. over. Yeah. So it was just, it just, we just got stuffed down there. But, but people waving flags and there were drums being beaten and chants being made. And it was just, I mean, it, so it was, even though it was packed, Jan and I commented throughout the whole experience that, that people were just delightful. Really? Like, like we were, we were packed in there like sardines, but everybody was happy and joyous and polite and, it was, I'd never been around that much kind of raw human energy in a crowd before, hmm. but that, that, that was that joyful. Cause usually when you're a crowd that big, it's people are a little freaked out and they're trying to push to get ahead. But, but it was delightful. Everybody was just, we were glad we were there. And oh, that's so, great. Yeah. It was a really celebratory feeling. I can imagine. Okay. So you, uh, you write this blog post after Charleston and you had this line in there about, uh, when the situation is most ambiguous, my racial biases and prejudice are most at work, which I found to be really fascinating because your argument was basically on the subject of the shooting in Charleston. It was a clear cut, good, evil. The line was clearly drawn, 
but in circumstances where you know the police brutality stuff, uh, there's questions of you know who is right, who is wrong. We don't really know, and so it's easy for there to be resistance and say no, it's not racism, it's X, Y, and Z. But on this issue, it was so clear cut. There was no real reason to have a debate about it, and that's why you felt like there was a great deal of support for it. But then the insight is that. In situations where there is ambiguity and we don't really know what's right and wrong, in those moments, that's where we see our racial biases probably most at work, which is real interesting to me. So, yeah, um, yeah, and the argument is is that if we if and and I'm making a deeper point there is that since the civil rights movement, like when you had like Jim Crow segregation, literally a whites only sign above a bathroom or a whites only at the lunch counter, just a very clear, obvious location of discrimination. Um, and then you have nonviolent direct action, um, you know, as, as during the sit-in movements um, or the freedom rides, then that created a very clear, crisp moral narrative during the civil rights movement where white America, even then, it took people time to get their heads around it, you know, but, but, yeah. but, but, and that was one of the keys that, that King kept talking about nonviolence. It just makes the moral narrative really crisp and clear. And so there's no wiggle room. And so sympathy can be marshaled. Well, well, my point is that, is that, um, the, the areas of injustice in our world are so systemic now, it's very hard to kind of point to like a hiring practice or a law on the books that is like, this is the problem. This, this law, this, this act of discrimination is, is the root of what ails us racially in America. Instead, what we have is economic issues or, or generational issues or, um, and so there's just a lot of ambiguity about kind of, we see the out, we see the products of the system. We see that. Does that make sense? We see that no. we see the consequences of the system. So, for example, like mass incarceration, we see that, like, uh, you know, minorities are incarcerated at higher rates than whites. So mm-hmm. we see the outcome. But it's very hard to then locate the engine That's that produces it. that. Right. So is it drug laws? You know, is, is, is it the, the war on drugs? Is it the racism of the police force? Is it the um, uh, economic generational things that are creating, you know, um, uh, making crime more prevalent mm-hmm. in, in, in inner cities? And so is it a, is it a generational economic depra- deprivation that's causing I mean, – and it's probably many and all of those things. Yeah. You know? And, and, and so, so how do you fix – if if everything is broken everywhere in subtly invisible ways, how do you fix that? And I think that's been the hardest part of dealing with race in America is because um, there's, it's, it's, it's such a broad, ambiguous system that it's very hard to point to the one thing that is broken that needs fixing. And so therefore we can kind of rage about race relations in America, but we struggle with articulating a very clear, Fix. So think about Ferguson and Staten Island with Eric Gardner. And so what was the fix? Well, the fix was police should all wear cameras. Remember that? Yeah. You know, they should. So that's the fix. 
Well, you know, is that the fix? I mean, that's not the fix. I mean, that might be one part of the fix to present, you know, prevent like an egregious misuse of police force. But the fix is goes to almost the roots of of the generational trauma that slavery caused in African American population, and and how do you fix that yeah. at that deep at that deep structural level? So all that to say is, I was using Charleston to kind of say. Racism in America is, is if we wait for the clear cut ambiguous situation, we'll never make progress because that's just an impossible standard um, morally to expect out of the African-American community. That, that in every interaction with the police, if we're going to give sympathy to the, um, the African-American man that is, you know, a woman who's been abused by the police officer, if we expect them to be saints, pure uh, before we give them sympathy, well, we're never going to make any progress at all. Hmm. Um, and and, I, and yeah. that's the point I was trying to make is that 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 if white America only gives black America universal unanimous benefit of the doubt when they basically are morally pure. Well, none of us are morally pure. No. No and, and so you're going to have to do what liberation theologians call give a preferential option. When it's ambiguous, you're going to have to give the benefit of the doubt. Um, preferentially towards the oppressed population. Uh, but and that to me, that's what's not forthcoming um, in, in race relations where white America and white Christianity is not giving a preferential option to seeing the situation from the perspective of the oppressed or the disadvantaged or the marginalized. Um, you're not privileging their perspective over your own knee jerk assumption. Yeah. No, I, I, and I think that's right. And I, so I think if you have that filter of I'm in ambiguous situations, probably going to lean towards people who look like me, act like me, and come from places like me, you're never going to fix a problem. And so I feel like that's a great, like just a litmus test to whatever action you're going to do is to say, wait a minute, who am I giving the preferential treatment to in this situation? And it's probably going to be someone who looks like me, acts like me, and talks like me. And yeah. uh, that doesn't fix anything. Well, and I, I, don't, I don't think it's because people are wicked. No, I don't think so at all. It's just it's just basic social psychology. You know, you're just we're kind of we're very egocentric, and and so what I tell churches like it's not like people are out there actively trying to be racist. It's just it, this is the knee jerk way our minds work. We 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 pr- privilege our own group, so that means you have to be very intentional and deliberative to overcome that knee jerk bias. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the wickedness is just produced by just natural group psychology, yep. which goes back to your point about are we getting any better over time, human, humans? And the answer is probably not because the human mind is still the human mind, and we tend to privilege people who look like us. Yeah, definitely. That makes sense, uh, especially when you said that I'm right. I definitely agree with that, that I'm right. <laughs> well, uh, Richard, I appreciate your time. I know you're on vacation, so I'm going to let you get back to it. Uh, I know you're working on your new book and – uh, obviously, I see that you're doing blog posts now about unicorns, which is really exciting. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I never thought I'd see a blog about a unicorn on your old experimentaltheology.blogspot.com, but I saw it a couple of weeks ago, so thank you for that. Yeah, well, I try to keep it, you know, I try to keep it creative over there. Hey, you know? sometimes Every you got Every day is something new. Yeah, you got to mix between, you know, the broken racial uh, systems in our country and unicorns. You know, <laughs> you got to do it. I mean, it's only natural. Uh, yeah, so uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Enjoy your time yeah, in PA. Appreciate it, man. It was great. Thank you. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>